As you engage with the following sermon, I want to make two quick clarifications. The first is that I misattributed a story about Ranger Rick Magazine and European water spiders to Ray Ortland when it was actually from John Piper. Second, the same John Piper article, which I gathered and read a number of months ago while researching and planning for this series, contained a framework that inspired the five ways in which creation is good. Though I put those five points into my own words, I felt it right to go back and offer appropriate attribution to John Piper for his helpful work, which both fed my soul and hopefully will feed yours as well. I always want to be careful to give credit where credit is due, and throughout this series, I've been thankful for the work of John Piper, the team at Desiring God, Alan Ross, The Bible Project, Jen Wilkin, John Mark Comer, and a host of others who have aided my preparation each week. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, for the last time, not ever, but for a time. It's been, we've been in Genesis 1 for a while. It's going to be our last morning there. Um, earlier this week, I saw a statistic that said something like 40 to 45% of American adults eat breakfast. And so just for anecdotal data, how, how many are breakfast eaters? Mm, yeah, that's probably about right. Uh, how many actually had breakfast this morning? Okay, did anybody have a breakfast this morning that they thought was like particularly good? Like my breakfast was delicious. Okay, Betsy, perfect. Okay, uh, what did what'd you have for breakfast? Oatmeal, chia seed, flax seed, and honey. Okay. And strawberries. Anything else? No, that's it. Okay. Uh, and so you think that that's a particularly tasty breakfast. Luke, what do you, how do you feel about that breakfast? Yeah. Okay, yeah, there you go. Warmed up pancakes. So... So kind of the the second question would be, if someone else thinks that oatmeal, flaxseed, chia seeds, honey, and strawberries is gross, is it still good to you? Or like, oh, and some other people, but not all people. Okay, now an existential question. Okay, the oatmeal and the flax seeds and the chia seeds and the honey, are they good as like a moral quality in their nutrients okay yeah they're they like power the human no not morally they're just like neutral yeah yeah these are weird questions right yeah they're supposed to be someone had to Like oatmeal as we eat it doesn't just exist out in the wild. So someone has to like take that, process it in a certain way, deliver it. So the stuff that humanity makes out of, you know, like, is it good? I think the answers to those kinds of questions matter. Like what do we mean when we say that the world is broken by sin? Genesis 1.31 says that God saw all that he had created and behold, it was very good indeed. And then in Genesis chapter three, sin enters the world and humanity is marred by sin. And we say that creation is broken by sin. And Romans says that creation is groaning under the weight of sin, waiting for its redemption when Christ returns. So like, does what happens in Genesis chapter three negate the statement at the end of Genesis chapter one? 
is it still good? Now, I'm not, I don't want us to just have like a, a philosophical conversation this morning. But I think the answers to those questions matter for a host of very practical reasons. I think how we answer those types of questions influences how we engage with the world. I think it influences how we engage with our work. I think it influences how we engage with the lost, even. And I think the way that we answer those questions and engage in the world and engage with our work and engage with the lost influences how the lost then engage with us. And so here's what I want to do this morning. As a means of sort of like wrapping up and reflecting on Genesis chapter 1, I want to walk through it one more time and and point out a couple more like 30,000 foot things. And then attempt to answer two questions from that last verse. What does Genesis 1.31 mean when it says that creation is very good indeed? That's question number one. And number two, is that still the case on this side of sin's presence in the world? And then along the way, I hope to layer into that why any of that actually matters in your daily life and following Jesus. And so if you've got Genesis chapter one open in front of you, we're going to read the whole thing one more time. This is the word of God beginning in Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse, separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the water he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth to rule the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning the fourth day. Then God said, let the water swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. 
So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, uh, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came and then morning, the sixth day. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your creation. God, we thank you that you have created each one of us intentionally and wonderfully. God, we praise you because you chose to make us bearers of your image in the world that you created, God, that we didn't do anything to accomplish or achieve that, but by your grace, you've set that upon us, God, and you love us. God, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us in your word. God, I pray as we continue to look at your word and to worship alongside one another, God, that we would see you clearly, that we would see Jesus clearly, that you would stir in our hearts a deeper affection for him so that we cherish him above all else. We pray this in his matchless name, amen. As we've worked our way through Genesis chapter one, what we've, what we've tried to do uh, at different times is kind of take these rhythms that are there in the text and like pull them into the foreground and then sort of answer the question, why does it matter that this rhythm is present? And so we saw that there's the rhythm of God said, let there be. And then there is. And the rhythm that comes after that is, and it was so. We also saw the rhythm of God declaring after each day it was good. We also saw that there's the rhythm of an evening and a morning, the fill-in-the-blank day. There are two more of these rhythms worth noting or pointing out kind of as we reflect on Genesis chapter one. The first one is that there's the phrase, God said, let there be, then, and it was so. And before God's like appraisal of that thing, we're told God saw, and then we're either told what he saw or we're just, or just says, and God saw that it was good. Okay, what's up with that? Does God have to see the stuff that he makes and then like step back and evaluate it, reflect on it before he can declare that it's good? What's going on there? Why God saw? It's like your child comes back from Kids Point this morning and they come running up to you and the activity is a thing full of glitter, right? And they say, can we put this on the refrigerator? And you're like, that means we got to put it in the car. And that means there's going to be glitter all over the car. And you're like, it's beautiful. Yeah, like you needed a second to appraise, right? Like, what am I going to say about this thing? Is that what God's doing? Augustine, in his work, The City of God, reflects on this question and says this. Nothing would have been made had it not first been known by God to be good. When, therefore, he sees that a thing is good, 
It is clear that he is teaching us, not discovering for himself that it is good. To paraphrase that, God is making declarations, not discoveries. God saw that it was good is not God stepping back and reflecting or examining. It is God telling us what he already knows. This thing is good. If it hadn't been good, he would not have created it. He's making a declaration about everything that he creates. It's good. It's good. It's, you know, late winter, early spring. I don't know what you call March 5th, but we already have a mole problem at the Fritzen house. You step into our yard in most places, you sink an inch and a half because you're standing on a mole trail. I contend that they live in our neighbor's yard and they just venture into our yard to feed. You can see the trails and they definitely go neighbor's yard to ours, not ours to neighbor's. I step outside, I see the little mole trails or I walk across our yard and I feel them sink down and I think these daggum moles. God from heaven looks down and he sees millions of moles scurrying underground, burrowing little holes. And he's like, look at those moles. Those are good. Like, they're so cute the way they just like burrow down underneath there and they just exist and they're good. And he wouldn't have made them if they weren't good. He only makes that which is good. And so he need not evaluate it in order to make the statement. He's teaching us by declaring that's good and that's good and that's good. And behold, it's very good indeed. It's common in our world today to sort of talk about like perception being reality. But it's worth pointing this rhythm out because God is the authoritative, objective interpreter of reality. He says it's good, it's good. How I perceive and interpret something is not what determines its goodness. In our world, the sort of dominant operating system of postmodern thought is that the only reliable interpreter of what is good and what is bad is my internal sense of what I decide is good or is bad. And your internal sense might be different. Whose is right? This is going to be an important uh, piece for us moving forward. So it's worth bringing to the front this morning. God is authoritative, objective interpreter of reality. And if he's not, then his commands mean nothing. Because if he can't determine what is and is not good, then he cannot say this is good and this is bad. Therefore, do this and don't do that. The only reason he can command is because he's authoritative, objective interpreter of reality. And so if followers of Jesus are going to be people who live according to God's word, then the first thing we have to do is allow our internal perceptions of what is good to be formed by his objective declarations. I'll say that again. If followers of Jesus are going to be people who live according to God's word, one of the first things we must do is allow our internal perceptions to be formed by his objective declarations. What I declare as good needs to agree with what he has said is good. Genesis 1 kicks that off for us as God sees, we're told, and declares. And you sort of take the whole big picture of Genesis 1 in view. It makes sense that he would be the only thing in the universe capable of making those declarations. He's outside of this place 
and yet he's engaged in it. He's the creator of all things, but he's dependent upon nothing. He's timeless and eternal with a perspective that we do not have. He's not sustained by sin in his evaluations. His opinions don't change based on a current life stage or mood. He's authoritative and objective interpreter of reality. The second rhythm, and the last one I want to point out, is the use of the words every, everything, and all. It's easy to miss in a quick reading, but if you sort of scan through, depending on your translation and how it chooses to translate those words, you'll see that they're used in verses 21, 25, 26, 28, 29, 30, and 31. They're used to talk about living creatures in the water, birds in the sky, livestock, creatures on the ground, seed-bearing plants, trees with fruit in them, and then in Genesis 1:31, all that he created. Very good indeed. And it's easy for our very logical, sort of linear Western brains to look at Genesis chapter 1 and say, oh, God creates order from chaos. It's about order. That's what Genesis 1 is all about. And that's true. God takes the chaos of Genesis 1 verse 2, formless and empty. He forms it and he fills it. But if you were to sit down with a more creatively minded individual within our congregation, I think they would also point out, yeah, but it's also wildly creative. All the creatures, every tree in its seed according to its kind and fruit according to its kind. And you can eat all of the plants in the garden. One commentator says that God's creation is anything but minimalist, right? It's ordered, but it's also creative. It's functional, but it's also beautiful. It's simple, but it's also wildly complex. It's full of both necessity, but also abundance. And so it's worth pulling this rhythm to the, to the front in order to say this. God not only declares what is good, but he himself is good. And we see this in the fact that one of God's first acts of grace is that for seemingly no apparent reason, he moves beyond baseline or whatever is the lowest necessary amount of something and instead blesses creation with abundant, creative, functional, beautiful goodness. Christopher Watkin, author, says it this way, God has not created a world with just enough sustenance, variety, and abundance for survival but he created a super abundant world fit to foster the flourishing of his creatures. He has not limited supply to the level of demand. God makes a riotous universe of fabulous functionality, a perfect marriage between tie-dye bohemian artist and a round spectacled mathematician. Human beings are created in and for a universe where order is always the content for rampant creativity. There's not just one meal for you to eat. Not everybody had to eat oatmeal and chia seeds and flax seeds with honey and strawberries. There are thousands of different things that you can eat. There's not one type of landform for you to observe. There's not one type of coffee bean for you coffee drinkers to enjoy. Amen. There's not one type of bird for Kurt Huber to go outside and watch. There's not one type of prey for predators to stalk. God moves beyond the baseline, beyond the lowest necessary amount, and it's every, everything, and all. Why? Because he's good, and he gave you thousands of taste buds that can pick up thousands of different tastes and thousands of different things that you can eat and enjoy, just because he's good. And so at the end of all of that, having created humanity in his image, both male and female, God makes a final declaration 
You get this like emphatic period after the culminating act of creation. God saw all that he had created and it was very good indeed. Up to this point, God saw and it was tov. This is the Hebrew word for good. Now God sees all that he has made and it is hene tov meod. The, the literal trans, transliteration. Behold, it was good exceptionally. Literally, God saw all that he had made, and now, behold, look. It's like an invitation for you to agree. God saw all that he had made, and behold, look. It's very good indeed. It's like the narrator of Genesis 1 looks around. He's like, yo, this place is dope. Like, look at all this stuff. We got all this stuff we can eat. Look at all these animals. Like, this is amazing. Behold, see it. It's very good indeed. And it's good not because... I think it's good, or the narrator thinks it's good, but because God says it's good. Creation was tov at every single step. It's good, it's good, it's good, but it's not exceptionally good until after humanity is created. Once humanity is created, now it's like exceptionally good. And so what's happened at the end here? Well, the place that was formless and empty is now formed and filled entirely. We've rectified the problem of Genesis 1 verse 2, and by the end of Genesis 1:31, humanity has been created, the image of God has been set upon them, they've been charged with ruling and subduing, like sub-creating underneath God, continuing to bring order with creativity and functionality with beauty and simplicity with complexity and necessity with abundance. That's what our work is, whatever it is. Scott talked about that last week. We're, we're like sub-creating under the providence of God with the stuff that he put here, and we're supposed to be bringing him glory with that. And God, that's, that's very good indeed. And it leads to this satisfying rest, a rest of satisfaction on day seven, and Adam is going to talk about that next week. But now I think we can answer our two questions. The first one, what is creation like being very good? What does that actually mean? And then, is it still good on this side of sin's entrance into the world? And so scripture outside of Genesis 1 helps us answer the first question. What are we talking about when we say that creation is very good indeed? I'm going to give five uh, points here that come from scriptures outside of the book of Genesis. The first is that creation expresses God's glory. Brian read Psalm 19 verses 1 and 2 in our Lent devotional. The heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. The most basic reason that God declares creation good is because it's a visible expression of his limitless glory. We talked about this earlier in our series, so I won't beleaguer the point. But this place that God has created is a theater where his glory is playing out for all of the universe to see. And that culminates on the cross. And the common denominator between everything that exists on this planet, everything that exists in the universe, whether the most complex thing or the simplest thing, is that it proclaims God is glorious. And the glory of God expressed in creation is very good indeed. Number two, creation offers God praise. Make it a point to go back at some, some time over the next week and read Psalm 148. It talks all about creation, not just humanity, but all sorts of different aspects of creation. And then in verses five and six, it says, let them, all of creation, praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. He set them in position forever and ever. He gave an order that will never pass away. 
Creation is good because it's out there just praising God by its simple existence. I read an article on this by Ray Ortland this week. He wrote it back in like the late 80s or early 90s. And he talks about getting a Ranger Rick magazine in the mail. Ranger Rick, yeah. People under 30 are like, uh, forget Ranger Rick, what's mail, right? <laughs> and he opened it up and inside one of like the main articles was all about European water spiders. Now this is nightmare fuel for me, but European water spiders are the only species of spider that lives the majority of its life, like 90% underwater. And it does so by spider swimming up to the surface, which is a horrifying thought. (laughs) Grabbing little like pockets of air that it's able to hold under its abdomen, dragging that back down to some plant that it's attaching a web to and building itself an oxygen bubble underwater. And then inside the oxygen bubble, it does all of its spider life. Mating, laying eggs, feeding, building the web. I mean, it's hideous to think about. That's reason enough for me to never swim in fresh water outside of a swimming pool, right? The fact that that could be lurking underwater, right? And Ray Ortland says this. He says, I sit there with my mouth open and I think God smiles and says, yes, Ray. And I've been been enjoying that little piece of art for 10,000 years before anyone on earth knew it existed. And if you only knew how many millions of other wonders there are beyond your sight that I behold with gladness every day. Creation offers God praise and the praise that creation offers God is very good indeed. Number three, creation displays God's wisdom. How countless are your works, Lord. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Psalm 104 verse 24. The way that this place functions is a testament to the wisdom of God. There's an amount of electricity that powers your nervous system, but you put too much electricity into your body and it will overpower your very existence. You have to have water to survive, but drink too much water and you put your life at danger. Salt is what makes food taste good, but too much salt is poisonous to the human body. The wisdom of God. There are constants in our universe that make it so that carbon, which is the basis of every life form on the earth, can actually form and clump together. The constants changed, carbon could not exist. There are constants in our universe that make it so that DNA can actually come together. There's a perfect amount of gravity so that the universe doesn't just expand endlessly and uncontrollably and nothing can actually stay together, but there's not too much gravity that everything sucks into one big ball and nothing can exist. The wisdom of God is displayed in creation and it's very good indeed. Number four, creation reveals God's power. Isaiah, the prophet, In chapter 40, has his reader turn their eyes toward the sky and then he reminds them that not one of those stars ever goes missing because of God's power. Isaiah 40, verses 25 and 26, to whom will you compare me or who is my equal, asks the Holy One. Look up and see who created these. He brings out the stars by number. He calls all of them by name because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. Leaves don't drop from trees 
earlier than they're supposed to because of the power of God. Ocean tides stop where they do because of the power of God. You go outside tonight and look up at the stars, and depending on how much light is around at the moment, you might see like a thousand or a few thousand of them. The sun, the closest star to us, is 93 million miles away, which is the perfect amount not to roast us. There are hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxies, and there's somewhere between 100 and 200 billion galaxies in the observable universe. All of those galaxies filled with billions of stars that are just existing off of nuclear fusion power. It's like raging inside of those stars. And yet none of that power challenges the power of the one who controls it and rules it and reigns it and set it into motion. The power of God revealed in creation is very good indeed. And last, creation directs attention to God's existence. Romans chapter one tells us that creation is like a sort of beginning point for our very knowledge of God. Then the word of God takes that initial knowledge and reveals to us in verbiage the truth of who God is. Job, as he's reflecting on that, he's, he's still kind of offering his defense for why none of the stuff that happened to him should have happened to him. And he makes a reference to creation. And then in Job 26, 14, he says, these are but the fringes of his ways. How faint is the word we hear of him. What you see in the world around you is but the fringes of the fullness of who God is. You can't possibly know God in full by staring at a maple tree, but sit there long enough and reflect on its existence long enough, Romans chapter one says, and you also cannot deny the fact that God exists. The existence of God that creation draws our hearts and eyes to is very good indeed. And so the next question is, is creation still all of those things despite the presence of sin? Sure, creation is good in, Job, or in, in Genesis 1.31 for all of those reasons, but then sin comes into the world in Genesis 3 and everything is broken. So where does that leave us? That question vexes people today and it also vexed people back in Jesus' day. The New Testament actually gives us a very concrete example that we can pull from to answer this question. And the example is food, which is why I made Betsy tell us all about her breakfast. Matthew 15 says this, summoning the crowd, Jesus told them, listen and understand it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. What comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, slander. These are the things that defile a person. Paul picks up that same theme in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and he says this. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Those are false teachers. They will forbid marriage and demand abstinence from food that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Both Jesus and Paul say that food, creation, isn't the issue. The issue is the human heart. Creation is still good. The problem is what our sinful hearts and our craving flesh want to do with that creation. As humanity continues to take all the creativity and abundance of God and like sub-create underneath him, we have the unique ability among all the creatures of the earth to turn what is good into an instrument for sin. 
the puppy that lives in your house is not taking stuff and using it to sin. It could be disobedient. I mean, you want to talk about like the wisdom and the power of God. How is it that that wild little beast can even come to understand how to live inside your house? I don't know. But we have the ability to take that which is good and by our own brokenness and our own sin, turn it into an instrument for evil, for sin. So for instance, we're gluttonous with food. Food itself is not bad. We lust after human beings. We're slanderous with language. We're idolatrous with nature and science. We seek value and worth from our relationships. We want notoriety from the internet. We strip the elements of the earth and nature for our own unchecked appetites. Food, people, language, science, nature, relationships, the internet. Those aren't in and of themselves created and thus evil. They're created good, very good, God says. What we do with them out of our own heart comes the defilement. To paraphrase Jesus, it isn't what went into the earth that is defiled. It's what sinful human hearts have brought out of it. That's what's defiled us. So to take the question from the start of the sermon and make it more broad, is the wood that made the chair the issue or is the issue that we feel like we need 47 chairs, like just more and more and more and more? And if I get six more, then I'll finally be satisfied. Is the internet the issue or is the issue the fact that we feel the need to receive validation and praise from the internet the issue? Is the development of language the issue or is the issue the fact that we use language to disparage those who are made in the image of God? Our use of the stuff of the earth, when used for God's glory, to God's praise, in light of God's wisdom, for the display of God's power, that is very good indeed. But in order to do that, we need redemption in our hearts because otherwise we'll take the stuff of the earth and use it to satisfy our sinful cravings. We need to be redeemed and sanctified in order to approach this stuff in the way that it's intended to be approached. And thankfully, that redemption has been provided for us. So if you have a Bible and you want to flip over to Colossians chapter 1. We've referenced this hymn a few times throughout uh, our Genesis series. Starting in verse 15, there's like an old kind of hymn or poem about who Jesus is. And so Colossians 1.15 says, he's the image of the invisible God. Next phrase, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and by him all things hold together. He's the perfect image bearer. He displays the image of God with a fullness that we do not and cannot. He's also the firstborn over all creation, doing in full what creation does in part. So, Jesus expresses God's glory in full. At the cross, all of the infinite qualities of who God is 
come screaming into one place in all of their fullness. None of them compromised, and they slam together. So love and justice come rushing together there at the cross. Grace and mercy and kindness and gentleness and anger and wrath and jealousy and all that God is in his infinite qualities come rushing together in Jesus in full, hanging there on the cross in the place of sinners, expresses the glory of God in a way that creation cannot. Jesus offers God praise in full. In all of his life, Jesus never gave praise to a thing that did not deserve it. He never made an idol out of anything that exists in the created world. He offered praise to one thing and one thing only, and that is God. Jesus displays God's wisdom in full. The plan of redemption and salvation that's brought into being in Jesus is what 1 Corinthians says is a wisdom that confounds those who are not saved. But for those who are saved, it's the wisdom of God. God's wisdom in full. Jesus reveals God's power in full. The power to take that which is broken and dead and make it whole and alive is the exact same power that spoke everything into existence. And last, Jesus is the expression of God's being in full. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, in the world. So, I say all of that to draw this conclusion. If we are going to enjoy what is in the world rightly, it's only going to happen as we cherish Jesus supremely. We enjoy God's creation as it's meant to be enjoyed when we cherish Jesus as he is meant to be cherished. He's the firstborn. He's the fullness. If we cherish Jesus supremely, we'll enjoy creation correctly, we'll engage with creation correctly, we'll use creation correctly, we'll rule and subdue creation correctly because cherishing Jesus as he is to be cherished, brings our heart under the lordship of God's authoritative, objective declarations of what is and is not good. It sanctifies our desires and our longings. If we don't cherish Jesus as he's meant to be cherished, I'll just worship whatever my flesh craves. I'll take that which is good in creation and use it as instruments to sin in order to fulfill my fleshly urges. I need to cherish Jesus as he is to be cherished so that my longings are sanctified. Cherishing Jesus as he is to be cherished frees us from the cravings of our flesh because we know where our ultimate satisfaction is found. Cherishing Jesus as he is to be cherished helps us to learn to uphold the dignity, the value, and the worth of other humans. Cherishing Jesus as he is to be cherished cherished, clarifies a right view and usage of the natural things of this earth. Cherishing Jesus as he is to be cherished builds wonder within us for the majesty of God as we understand the complexities of science. And so, Betsy, was your breakfast good? It depends, right? Yeah, did you want the breakfast to do something it never was intended to do? In that case, the breakfast was bad. If the explosion of flavor on your tongue as you ate breakfast led you to contemplate the glory and the wonder of God, then that breakfast was very good indeed. And everything that you engage with in life falls into the same category. And you say to yourself, that sounds exhausting, Tim. 
Am I supposed to take every single thing that I do and every single thing that I see and every single thing that I interact with? To which I say, Romans 12.1 says that you offer the whole of your life as worship to the Lord. And so in that sense, yes, if we're going to engage with God's very good creation as he intended us to engage with it, it's because we're going to allow that creation to help us worship the creator. Anything else is our heart taking good creation and turning it into an instrument for sin. We enjoy God's very good creation as it's meant to be enjoyed when we cherish Jesus as he is meant to be cherished. Our prayer ought to always be, Jesus, help me love you as you're meant to be loved so that my heart agrees with you on what is and is not good, so that my longings are sanctified, so that my desires are sanctified, so that I'm freed from the cravings of my flesh, so that I worship you as you're meant to be worshiped. And when we do that, we can agree with God. It's very good indeed. Because Jesus is very good indeed. Amen? Amen. Let's close in song.